This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Unified control of the White House and Congress just does not happen all that often. We're in one of those periods now with President Joe Biden and his fellow Democrats and the majority in the House and Senate. And they are pursuing policy like they know there is a clock, enacting a $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief measure in early March, and now releasing plans for a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure plan. With us on this episode of Political Theater is Molly Reynolds. She's a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and author of the book, Exceptions to the Rule, The Politics of Filibuster Limitations in the U.S. Senate. It's an interesting companion to our times and to what we've seen the last couple of decades when one party uh, is trying to get its way during these periods of unified control. Dr. Reynolds, welcome to Political Theater. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, yeah, I, I, one thing um, that uh, uh, you, you hinted at a little bit in our, before we got on mic is that when you, when you were writing your book, uh, it, it didn't, uh, it, it was, you know, it's just one of those like real uh, dry academic sounding things. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, this is all we're hearing, you know, in the political universe now is filibuster, you know, reform or filibuster changes or filibuster this or that and reconciliation. Uh, did you have any idea <laughs> when you were writing this that it, you would be in so in demand to talk about the reconciliation process? Yeah, so it's interesting um, to sort of think back on the the genesis of the book. So I started working, um, or I, I sort of first got interested in the reconciliation process in early 2009 when um, Democrats had just taken, again, sort of the, a new period of um, unified Democratic Party control of the House, the Senate, and the White House. And there was a lot of debate over what, if anything, they would do um, with a reconciliation process in that first Congress of um, the Obama administration. Obviously, ultimately, they used it to pass pieces of the Affordable Care Act in early 2010, though they spent most of 2009 trying to do that um, without using the reconciliation process moving through regular order. But one of the um, sort of one of the, the um, things that um, I sort of look at in the book that I think is really relevant to thinking about how reconciliation has changed and thinking about kind of the current moment that we're in is that if you look at sort of reconciliation's history from the early 80s um, through um, through 2010, uh, which is the kind of the period that I cover in, in the book. Like there were, it was used, the process was used to make big policy change. Um, and it was used to make big policy change that was advantageous to Senate majorities. Um, but for most of that time, it wasn't seen as the only way that a Senate majority party um, could get what it wanted. Um, it was a it was a useful tool for achieving things the majority party wanted to do for. Um, cutting taxes in the Bush administration, for making changes to Medicare, for reforming welfare um, in the in the Clinton administration. So, so big things that that were useful, important to the majority party, but it wasn't seen as kind of the 
the one neat trick that was available for a Senate majority in a period of unified party control to get its party-defining achievements. And I think the experience of the last decade or so is that it, it sort of has taken on that, um, that mantle. Um, again, starting with kind of the Obamacare experience, looking at the Republicans' failed attempt to repeal Obamacare using the process in 2017, their successful attempt at tax cuts, the American Rescue Plan, and then whatever else Democrats may choose to try and use the process for in the balance of this Congress. Uh, before, I mean, before we completely geek out. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I, and, I would say but, we've, yeah. already, we've already crossed that line. <laughs> we've already, but... <laughs> it's, it's already too far down. Listeners are like, yeah, too late, Jason. <laughs> what struck me too when you were talking about uh, the way that reconciliation was used, which has only been around since the 70s, since the Budget Control Act, uh, and you know, um, in in the 1970s, is that it? A, a lot of these instances you mentioned were during divided government. Um, the the um, you know the some of the Bush tax cuts were during divided government uh, in in 2001 at least. Um, the uh, the balanced budget act, you know, things like that were all. I mean, the, under under Clinton, the the uses of reconciliation were kind of bipartisan. And now, as you said, it's become this thing. It's like this is the only way we can get things done. So what happened? <laughs> Yeah, so this actually, um, to me, is a story of kind of broader change in American politics um, and less about sort of Congress itself. A lot of our even really consequential uses of reconciliation from um, from the 80s and 90s um, were um, did occur um, during um, divided government. But if we kind of think about the period, if we go back even a little bit further into the mid-20th century, we think about the period between the early 50s and about 1980, so um, the the 1980 election, we have this long period of um, uninterrupted Democratic Party control of Congress. And that's really because of the the nature of the Democratic coalition, kind of have the, the still Southern Democrats who are really different than non-Southern Democrats. Um, So you have this this long period of um, Democratic Party control and really an expectation among all the players that that's going to be kind of what what we're looking at, even as something else is happening at the presidential level, as Mm -hmm. um, we had a lot more split ticket voting, lots lot more voters who would go to the the polls and vote for a congressional or Senate candidate of one party, a president of the other party. So you sort of got this expectation that Democrats were going to control Congress, even if there was a Democratic or a Republican president in the White House. And I think that really shaped um, interactions um, and the negotiating environment um, in in the chamber. And then in 1980, um, uh, uh, Reagan wins election, Republicans take control of of the Senate, and you you have kind of this this first period of, um, this period of divided government. Mm -hmm. Um, And you, um, and then we sort of build to 1994 when Democrats lose control of the House for the first time since since the 1950s. And once we got to this point where you had um, more macro political competition between between the uh, the parties, and there was more of a chance that um, either party would take control um, after um, after the next um, election, it, it, I, to to me that really shaped um, and affected how um, how the parties relate to to one another, and um, both was caused by and has helped perpetuate the polarization of the parties in Congress. And so, to me, that's kind of um, helps us. That that all helps me understand why we have um, uh, sort of like what it means to have um, unified party control versus divided party control in in the current moment. And it almost, I mean, it's when we say too that it's unified control right now. I mean, it's just by a whisker. 
you know, <laughs> you know, we have a 50-50 Senate, um, you know, so this in, empowers any one senator at any given time, usually Joe Manchin, uh, but also, you know, Lisa Murkowski or, or Susan Collins on the Republican side. Anybody can can make a, uh, you know, make sort of a power play in that. And in the House, it's not that much different. I mean, we have, um, we have, have an even thinner margin. It was, you know, after the elections, it was a five seat uh, margin for the Democrats. But, you know, with with uh, Biden picking several members of the House for his cabinet, like Marsha Fudge and Deb Holland, uh, the, and and uh, um, Cedric Richmond for his staff, uh, I mean, it, the, the margin's even smaller now. Um, is this, I, I don't see how it changes that much. You know, like, I mean, like, that that it's, those sort of margins just seem like kind of locked in for the foreseeable future, it seems. Yeah, I mean, it's um, the kind of the big X, next X factor in this question, at least in the House, is kind of what happens with um, the redistricting process um, um, going into to 2022, and kind of how how does that um, how does that shake out? Um, but I think um, you're absolutely right that like the current majorities um, in both chambers are um, really really slim, um, and that that. That presents challenges even to a party that has unified party control. And, you know, we, um, there's lots of conversation right now about the Senate filibuster, whether Democrats will, will change it. And the, I, I think that the kind of tenor of that conversation in a 50 50 Senate is really different than the tenor of that conversation, even in a Senate where Democrats had 52 seats um, and had like a little more uh, wiggle room in terms of building a coalition that would uh, potentially support that change. And so it really is um, uh, certainly in the, in the very, the the very near term going to be a real, uh, a real challenge. And that comes back to kind of why is reconciliation so attractive as a, um, it's a legislative tool, uh, and it's because it allows you to do some things, not all the things. Um, right. And sometimes, when you want to do a thing, you have to kind of go in through the back door instead of through the front door to meet the requirements of the bird rule. Um, but that's that's such a big part of why it's um, why it's so attractive. And and really, I mean, the the pressure that the political parties must feel. To just, to, I mean, in under kind of sort of normal circum. Well, I hate to use the term normal because we we bandied about a lot, uh, you know, like getting back to the new to normal and so forth. But in in a healthy political system or a more diverse political system, presidents usually don't get that much time to begin with uh, to to get their agenda before midterm politics take over, before the political dynamics change, before they have to start thinking about running for reelection. So really, the first two years of a president's term is go time for big ticket items. But even by those standards, there's just this immense pressure on Biden, uh, it seems to me, uh, and, and to Pelosi, uh, Nancy Pelosi in the House and, and Chuck Schumer in the Senate, to to get as much done as, as they possibly can uh, because it, they're just not guaranteed. I mean, you know, a few... A few votes here and there can make make the difference between the majority and the in this in the Senate and the House. And, and again, if we look back over kind of the the twentieth century um, history of American congressional elections, we know that the president's party almost always loses seats in the midterms. And so, when you are as Democrats are right now looking at already very narrow majorities, um, a, um, a losses um, of the of the kind that history would suggest would come in, in the first midterm of a, of a president's term, um, really have the potential to, um, to do away with the, the majority they have, especially in, in the House. Um, the, the Senate map is a, for this midterm is a little bit, um, a little bit different. Um, 
but I, so I think consistent with what you're saying, like there is this sense that they don't have much time. Um, and, and that, that both means that they have to Democrats probably feel like they need to be aggressive, but it also shapes Republicans incentives where, you know, if, if, if Republicans know that Democrats think they don't have much time, that incentivizes Republicans to say, if we just really dig in hard, then we don't, we don't have, we don't have to dig in hard for that long. We don't have to outlast them forever. um, Just for, you know, these, these first two years till the midterms. So as a scholar of congressional procedure and politics and trends in how majorities use their powers uh, for, for uh, um, to, to get what they want, do you feel some pressure right now? Just feeling like, wow, this is like one of those moments that I'm going to be asked about for the rest of my career. I better really take good notes right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. Um, it's certainly, um, it, it, it certainly does um, feel like, um, you know, a lot of, uh, I get asked a lot, like, what do I think Democrats will do about the filibuster? And I, I say that if you asked me this question a year ago, I would have been much more skeptical than I am now that they would they would make a change. But I think that um, the uh, sort of where we've seen, uh, and I'm, I'm still somewhat skeptical that they'll, they'll make a change um, because it's not clear to me what there are 50 Democratic Senate votes for that they all think is important enough um, and agree on to, to make a change to the filibuster for. But it's, it's certainly been um, been trending, um, I think, in that direction um, over, over the last year, last couple of years. Um, but it really, uh, it is... Um, to try to put it in historical context um, is is a challenge when you're sort of living um, living through it. Um, but that's one of the one of the advantages of having spent so much time thinking about this is that you know I can I can think back to um, to what what I've what I know and have read about um, for you know or, the history or, of congressional procedure or or what you've even participated in with people at roll call like Niels Lesniewski I mean yeah. you, you guys you, the two of you were at a conference on congressional procedure in Georgia a, a couple of years back or something. Yep. and yep. and uh, I, it'd be interesting to see like you know the j- j- you know comparing yourself right <laughs> comparing like the the facts on the ground um uh, well, well Molly thank you so much for uh for talking through this this is a this is one of those um I never would have imagined that there would have been an appetite you know sort of to to talk you know in depth about the effect of reconciliation outside of just some you know some tax policy experts or so forth and then I I think you're right I mean really we saw an inflection point with Obama uh, and with the Affordable Care Act, and it's just kind of kept up pace. And this is a uh, this is one of those times too. So thank you for kind of uh, helping us uh, make make some sense of it at least. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And now we turn to our politics editor here at CQ Roll Call, Herb Jackson. Uh, Herb and I are going to discuss what are some of the political implications of the you know, one party pursuing uh, with their eye on the clock some big-time policy goals and another party saying, hold on a second, uh, we can wait this out. Herb, hello. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Um, one, one of the things that I, I was struck by um, what we, what I was talking to Molly Reynolds about was that she said that, you know, in the, in the current, you know, kind of configuration, the, the, Temptation to use reconciliation because you don't have to worry about a uh, a filibuster is so great now that they're they're using it for all kinds of policy prescriptions. You know, they, and and as she said, they 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 sneak some in the back door. <laughs> um, 
you know, under the guise of it being about taxes or spending, which I guess invariably everything is taxes and spending. Um, but that the the minority party ha- now has even less of an incentive to play ball because in a situation like we have now where we have such small margins in both chambers, the Republicans, you know, probably rightfully think I've got a pretty good shot at getting the majority. So like next in the next year's election. So we'll just make the next two years hell <laughs> for the, for the Democrats in hopes that we can gain seats. What does this do to our politics? Are we seeing this dynamic in, in, in politics in the midterm politics that you're covering? Oh, we are. Well, we, we haven't really started the midterms because we don't have candidates for Senate seats really. And we, the house, nobody knows what their district is going to be, but we see it on the floor because you have motions to adjourn. Like right. let's just adjourn the Congress until we get another election. Uh, and, and the other thing you have right now is a whole question of the legitimacy of the Biden presidency by the minority party that we really haven't seen probably since, you know, George W. Bush in, in 2001. And, and there it was, less pronounced among Democrats. There were a lot of Democrats who were smarting about Al Gore's loss, but they weren't as, as, as they were still willing to accept that George Bush was the president. Um, but, but now you know, there, there is clearly a segment of, of the Republican Party in Congress that is going to tell their voters that these people shouldn't have been in power anyway. Um, and when you have the Senate at 50-50 where by virtue of winning the presidency, the Democrats took control of the Senate um, because of the vice president being able to break ties. There's a question of the legitimacy of the authority. And, and we're going to see that happen much more clearly in the campaign. And then the last thing is that President Trump has gone away. I mean, to the extent that he's playing a role in campaigns going forward, um, changes all the dynamics of what we're going to see in 2022. Yeah, and I mean, we do have we do have a few candidates, right? I mean, we we know that Mark Kelly um, and uh, Raphael Warnock, uh, who provided you know the some of the Democrats' uh, much needed wins in order that, for them to to be a part of the majority, they're both going to be on the ballot. They're already running. Uh, like it. Warnock has been very. Um, <clears throat> vocal about voting rights and, and an outspoken sort of opponent, as most of the Democratic Party is, but he in particular about the new um, voting voter um, restrictions that Georgia enacted recently. Um, but I, it, it's weird. I mean, I just don't. I, I don't know. Like I've, I, I'm racking my brain for a time when, um, you know, changing the filibuster. <laughs> has been such a an issue um, 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 in political races, and whether that has any kind of currency, or is it really just going to be, I mean, this sort of trench warfare the last in the, in the run up to twenty twenty two? Yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting that you have Democrats who are afraid or not afraid, but but resist getting rid of the filibuster, uh, and it's because they recognize that they're not going to be in the majority forever. Um, but, but you also have people like uh, Congressman Mo Brooks, who just announced he's running for the open Senate seat in Alabama and told our Bridget Bowman uh, that when he ran in seven, 20, for the seat in, when it was open in 2017, he was for getting rid of the filibuster because Trump was president. And now he's not because Biden is going to use it to enact socialist policies. 
But if we get a Republican president back, he'd be for getting rid of it. And that's, that's it right there. It's not about we should let the minority be, what is it? It's the, 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 the saucer that cools the tea or whatever it the is. The cooling saucer, one of my yeah. least favorite metaphors. Yeah, because I don't, we, we use mugs, right? We don't, <laughs> use, we don't use saucers. So, but, but the point is, it's not like that. It's just like, we don't want them to have power. We want to have power. And that is where it's at right now in partisan politics world. But it is not like the public is sitting there saying, Oh my God, they used reconciliation three times in a fiscal year. That's not right. <laughs> that, just, that, didn't, that didn't make it through the bird bath, you know, and all yes. these other sort of arcane things. I wanted uh, them to call it re-reconciliation, right. you know? <laughs> I, I, it's nonsense. Yeah, and I, and I, you know, getting back to kind of like the, the you know, one of the ideas, one of the topics I just want to kind of explore in, in this podcast too is, you know, we just we're not seeing unified government all that much anymore. And, and, you know, we saw like a a pretty good um, run, you know, for the democratic party from the fifties until about the nineties. And then they started to, you know, become a little less diverse party, uh, became a more liberal party and the Republicans became a more conservative party. And we're just, I mean, the pressure is just immense to get something done when you have, control of all the levers and for republicans it's it's usually been about tax cuts uh and for democrats it's been uh about health care and now we see it's going to be about infrastructure uh and you know I, I was struck right before we went you know we started to record this that uh mitch mcconnell the senate minority leader in kentucky uh a notorious uh previous earmarker and pork barreler uh, was asked about this bridge, you know, that spans Ohio and Kentucky, uh, Spence Bridge or something like that, and and uh, it's it's needed repair since I don't know, like since the Medici, you know, ruled Italy practically, and and he, he was asked like, what if there's money in the infrastructure package for the, to repair the bridge? And he said, doesn't matter. <laughs> It's a Trojan horse for tax increases and in, and increasing the deficit. Like he cares about the deficit. I mean, like I think it's adorable when when the Republicans get out their deficit worry hats. Uh, you know, when they're not in power. But um, I don't know. It, it just it seems like this is it. I mean, it's just like going to be you know, if, if blue and red teams, and when when blue's on offense, they're going to get what they want, and when red's on offense, they they're going to get what they want. <laughs> right. And but the problem is that you know there's. There's teal and there's like powder blue. I mean, the, the the blues are not all the same color blue in the Democratic Party. And you also saw like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying, you know, I don't think there's enough spending in Biden's $2 trillion package. Um, and, COVID, and the COVID relief package, yeah. And, and that, no, no, in, in, the, in the infrastructure package. Mm-hmm. And, and that's partly because, you know, the window the Democrats see is just a two-year window right now. And we are already a quarter of the first year over. Um, and we had to spend a month of that trying to impeach the previous guy, right? Uh, and, and, and it was one of those things where um, if that's all they got and they think they have to save the planet and build a new society where people don't have to worry about violence or you know, oppression, that's a lot to fit in when you only work three days a week, three weeks out of every month, <laughs> and you take August off. 
<laughs> right? So you got to get a lot done. And if people are just making motions to adjourn all the time, it really gets in the way. But So the, the Democrats are not all together. I mean, you know, I, I would want to see the bill that uh, AOC and Joe Manchin write together and what that does. Uh, so they're going to have to try and figure out where they go. But the other thing we saw when even the Republicans would, you know, march through glass, you know, crawl through glass to do tax cuts. You know, it was a it was touch and go for a little while there at the end of 2017. You know, Bob Corker had to suddenly decide, you know what, maybe it'll pay for itself. And Marco Rubio held out to get a, a, a more generous child tax credit. I mean, there are things that are in the plan the president is announcing on Thursday, on Wednesday, that are not going to be in the final plan and may only be there so they can give up on them later and get people on board. And there are things that aren't in there. Like, you know, we haven't talked about New Jersey yet. I can't believe that, but you know, I, I'm this, shocked this, myself. The state and local tax deduction is not in there. And, and some New Jersey and New York guys are saying, well, if it's not there, you don't have my vote. Well, they can put that in later. And now they pick up another seven or eight votes, you know? So this is where we're at right now. They're going to say, let's give the Republicans a week to, to beat it up and say, all right, we tried to be bipartisan and the Republicans wouldn't go for it. Now let's write a bill ourselves. And that sounds like the dynamic we're going to be dealing with uh, in, until, well, at least until we get um, uh, reapportionment and we figure out what yeah, House April, and Senate race is May, going to be like. June, July, we'll take August off, part of <laughs> September, right? <laughs> and then we'll figure it all out. All right. Well, Herb, uh, again, I, I apologize for not being able to get New Jersey in until the very end of this. It's a, I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a tragic uh, thing. It, it happens. I know that like you probably have to answer to some New Jersey star chamber on this, but uh, we'll get you back on and we'll, we'll do like an all Jersey hour or something like that eventually. <laughs> all right, sir. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. That's going to do it for this edition of political theater. Thank you for listening. 